Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, uh, I don't know, 80-something of the podcast. I never <laughs> went episode number, but uh, uh, point being, it's not a very new podcast anymore, but for those of you... Uh, First-time listeners out there, uh, basically what we do here in the podcast is I, uh, um, you know, have an author on to uh, interview to talk about their a book of theirs that's been newly published, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a discussion about, and uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you, uh, you go out and uh, pick up the book yourself and give it a read. So um, yeah, if you, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Michael Beckley. And uh, Dr. Beckley is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And previously, he was an international security fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and worked for the U.S. Department of Defense, the RAND Corporation, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He continues to advise offices within the U.S. intelligence community community, and the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, His work has appeared in uh, the Journal of East Asian Studies, International Security, the Journal Strategic Studies, the Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, among others, and he is the author of Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower. And lastly, uh, he is the co-author, along with uh, his colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Hal Brands, uh, co-author of the new book, Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, uh, which was just published a couple days ago by W.W. Norton & Company, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Beckley, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no problem. So, um, what what made you guys want to write this book? What was what was the uh, what was the genesis of it? Well, uh, each of us separately had been thinking about what is what would it mean if China is actually weaker than most people think, and if China's rise is going to end sooner. Uh, than than is the conventional wisdom. Hal had written an article several years ago in the American Interest talking about the dangers of declining powers, where he mainly focused on sort of the problem of strategic encirclement. So you know a World War One uh, Germany kind of scenario where uh, you have this rising power that suddenly fears it's going to get crushed mm. in a vice of strategic encirclement. And I had written an article for Foreign Affairs. Um, around the same time that focused on problems of slowing economic growth. So what happens when a fast growing great power suddenly starts to slow down? And as we started working together at um, AEI, we just realized we had this common interest and in that we it was sort of two sides of the same coin that actually what often happens is uh, these rising powers face both a slowing economy and rising strategic pushback. And that seems to be what China is encountering today and why we really worry that it's starting to fit that ugly historical pattern where these countries don't mellow out. They tend to get more belligerent and aggressive and repressive as things start to turn against them. So Mm -hmm. we put our heads together. We wrote a short article for foreign affairs. We wrote a longer report and then we just kept going and going. And pretty (laughs) soon we realized we might as well write a book about this just because it seemed like such an important topic. And because our core argument is that time is short, uh, that we needed to get this message out there as quickly as possible because we really do think there is this danger zone that the United States and its allies face vis-a-vis China right now. Yeah, so um, 
how did you guys, as someone who's uh, co-authored a book before, um, I'm always interested in how other people do it. Um, you know, cause so did you guys like, uh, um, did you break down like the division of labor, like beforehand, all right, you're going to take, uh, this chapter on this issue. I'll take this one on this one. Uh, you know, and then you'll take this one and I'll take this one and then we'll sort of write and then come back after we have our first drafts and, you know, read each other's drafts and suggest, uh, uh, you know, make suggestions, all that sort of thing, add to it, add to each other's chapters, et cetera, et cetera. Did you do it that way, or was there a different uh, different process? Yeah, it was basically that process. I mean, the the good thing is our our respective areas of expertise kind of mm. helped with the division of labor. So Hal is a eminent historian of the Cold War and mm. has written a number of pieces, you know, trying to derive lessons from the Cold War for how to wage great power competition with Russia and China today. I I've spent most of my time studying China, especially elements of its economy and how it's able to assemble uh, national power. And so when we are breaking down the the chapters, you know, we have several chapters that go through Cold War history and lessons. And so Hal, you know, would write the first draft of those. There are several chapters that go through all the different liabilities that China has racked up. I wrote mm. the first draft of those, and then we would trade, and then expand on and refine that first draft and then kind of come back together for a final edit. And, um, you know, Hal is the most efficient person I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life. Um, so he forced me to really up my game. And I think, um, you know, at least on, on my half, it really pushed me to, to, um, yeah. really, really work hard and kind of take <laughs> these arguments to the next level. So I, to, this is by far the best collaborative process I've ever had. Um, yeah, yeah this is his, uh, this is his second book this year within yeah. like the last, like, six months i think yeah. and yeah. he's written you know probably written or co-written um, probably at least like close to 10 other uh books and he doesn't look that old you know i don't know he could be but like in his like headshots and everything i've never met him in prison but like you know uh his uh headshots and everything he looks like you know, like relatively young guy, so that's kind of annoying. You know, <laughs> he is, yeah, he makes us all feel uh, inferior and wonder what we're, we've been doing with our lives this whole time. So he he just he has this gift of being able to think and speak in coherent paragraphs, and mm-hmm. so he can just sit down and the words will just flow out. I'm I'm much more of the agonizing over every single word and having to yeah. go back. Writing for me is um, a painful struggle. Um, and so, but I had, you know, I had no choice. I had to, had to move yeah. quick. Well, it was the, the old Dr. Johnson line that, uh, you know, anyone who didn't write for money was a blockhead or something like that. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway. All right. Um, yeah. So the book itself, you, you mentioned, uh, a couple of minutes ago, the core argument of the book, which, uh, uh, basically is this, I guess. And then, uh, you really expand on that if you want to. Uh, basically, so you guys are um, positing that uh, China is going to be a falling power far earlier than people think, and that its best days are probably already behind it, as, uh, or at least for the Chinese Communist Party. And that uh, because of that, the United States needs to uh, stop seeing this rivalry between us and China uh, less as like a less as a marathon and more as a sprint. So less this a uh, hundred year, uh, marathon, you always, you know, you see these articles all the time about, or, or maybe not so much now, but a few years ago about, you know, the coming Chinese century and all that sort of stuff. So we need to stop seeing this rivalry in, in those sort of longer term, um, 
uh, in that longer term sort of lens and, and focus really on this decade long uh, sprint that with this danger zone that we're going to be going through when China uh, is uh, going to be um, sort of, uh, you know, at its most dangerous, you know, sort of like a wounded tiger or something like that, you know. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, the the book, Hal and I joke that it's sort of a new addition to the old let's all freak out about China genre. (laughs) Um, Our argument is people are right to worry about China, but they usually worry for the wrong reason. China is becoming more dangerous, not because it's going to inevitably get stronger and stronger, but because it actually may start getting substantially weaker. Its rise, we argue that China's rise is effectively ending right now. Its economy is slowing precipitously. Its population is about to age and die off in unprecedented numbers. Rivals are starting to gang up against it. So we characterize China more as a risen power than a rising power and argue that we've reached an era of peak China where it's strong and ambitious enough to violently change the existing order, but is losing confidence that time is on its side. And that's just a very scary Uh, possibility because that's exactly the dynamic that caused past great powers to lash out. It was the peaking powers like Germany in 1914, Japan in 1941 that started some of the bloodiest wars in history. And China already seems to be inching its way down this path. It's just in recent years become exponentially more repressive at home and aggressive abroad and just looks increasingly poised to do what those past peaking powers did, which is rush through near term windows of opportunity before a longer term window of vulnerability opens wide. We think that's going to manifest in terms of um, military expansion and conquest along its periphery, Mm. uh, economic neo-imperialism across the global south and political warfare, a concerted effort to destabilize democracies and prop up autocrats around the world. Okay, so. So what what does China want? What is uh, um, you mentioned in the book that in 2014 China produced sort of like a new uh, formal national security policy and this policy of dual circulation. Uh, So so yeah, what does uh, what does China want? what is this new uh, national security policy? What is dual circulation, and why is that so worrisome? Sorry, that's a lot. You know, a lot of questions. In, in yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe we can break it down in yeah. a few sections. I think you know, in terms of what China wants, you know, I don't think there's any mystery to what China wants because China's leaders have been saying the same things for decades. They first of all want to take back what they consider lost Chinese territories that were ripped away from China during the century of humiliation. So that includes Hong Kong. Taiwan, um, Austria sized chunk of Indian controlled territory and roughly 80 to 80 percent of the East and South China seas. I mean, those goals have always been fixed. It's just a question of tactics. And we just worry China is going to be switching towards more aggressive tactics to consolidate that territorial empire. Um, And then this is all just a way station to becoming the world's dominant nation. Chinese leaders view the current set up as a as a aberration that they they believe they come from a you know a, a long lineage of an ancient chinese civilization where for much of that china was this dominant power and they want to eventually advance back towards uh, that that position um and so they have very ambitious objectives and those get manifested first in this territorial expansion but also in terms of um, economic expansion, trying to carve out this economic sphere of influence 
um, abroad and create relationships of dependency so that China can then use its economic dominance to cajole countries to tow the, the Chinese Communist Party line. Hmm. And that means uh, this um, that means that we are <laughs> essentially the main problem for China. Yeah, I think short Americans, and long term. Yeah, Americans definitely underestimate the extent to which the Chinese view the United States as the main barrier to the China dream. Um, and ob- some of this is just obvious. You know, the United States prevents China from taking back Taiwan with its military forces. The U.S. Navy is in the South China Sea. The U.S. State Department is harping on China's human rights abuses and you know calling what it's doing in Xinjiang a genocide. But I think it goes beyond that. I think there are there's a strategic culture in China that is primed to view a country like the United States as a dangerous revisionist power that is going to be hell-bent on keeping China down. There's a there's definitely a perception that Western culture, it tends to be more militaristic, whereas Eastern culture is portrayed as Pacific. There's a kind of a Marxist holdover um, that, you know, because all these Chinese, all the Chinese leaders, you know, they had to read their their Marxism growing up. And so there's this constant perception that Western powers are, are just there to exploit them um, uh, and use up China's resources. And so they can never fully trust those economies. And there's also just a sort of offensive realist bent that any country as powerful of the United States will want to protect that power and will do anything it can to hold a rising power like China down. And so that just makes the kind of competition more um, more acrimonious and uh, sets itself up for more zero-sum competition between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so how did we get to this point? What were the, the factors that that contributed to China's um, this sort of meteoric rise uh, they've had uh, as a country since the since basically like I guess like the death of uh, Chairman Mao. Yeah, so I mean, one major argument we have in the book is that the past forty years are are an aberration. That China's exceptional rise has been the result of exceptional circumstances that are now disappearing. One of those circumstances was just basic security and economic access. I mean, Nixon goes to China in 1972 to recruit it as an ally against the Soviet Union, and China suddenly has a superpower on its side. You know, the United States warns Moscow not to attack China and then fast tracks China's integration with the free world. So China suddenly has a safe homeland and access to foreign markets and capital. And that's something China, you know, for the previous more than 100 years, really, you know, for from the first opium war in 1839 to the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, the country was just getting ripped apart by mm-hmm. imperialist powers. It was torn apart by two of the most massive civil wars in history, the Taiping Rebellion and the Chinese Civil War. Even after the Chinese Civil War, China almost immediately becomes America's number one enemy because of the Korean War. And then when the Sino-Soviet split happens in 1960, China is the enemy of the main enemy of both Cold War superpowers. So it had been isolated, surrounded and impoverished for many, many decades up until the 1970s. Nixon's visit to China is it changes that possibility. And China's timing in terms of opening up to the outside world is perfect because they start right at a, a period of hyper globalization really starts to kick into gear. World trade surges sixfold from 1970 to 2007. And China rides that wave to become the workshop of the world. 
Um, a second enabling factor is just the Chinese government was committed to reform and opening after Mao dies in 1976. So you had the right policies at the right time. A third factor is just China had the greatest demographic dividend in history for most of the past 40 years. We're talking like 10 to 15 workers for every elderly retiree in the population. Most countries don't get anywhere close to five workers per retiree. And this mm -hmm. was largely the result of China's peculiar population history, where you had this big baby boom in the 50s and 60s because Mao wanted Chinese families to quickly repopulate the country after it had been decimated by years of war and famine. But then the government starts worrying about overcrowding, so then they institute the one-child policy in the late 1970s. So in the 1990s and 2000s, you had this massive baby boom generation in the prime of their working lives, relatively few elderly parents to take care of, relatively few children because they weren't allowed to have them. And so no population has been mm. better poised for productivity. And the final factor was just resource abundance. You know, China was in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, was largely self-sufficient in water, food, energy, and easy access to those resources made growth very cheap. You could just set up a factory, plow through the raw materials. So from the 1970s, really till the early 2010s, China kind of had it all. But now all of these assets are quickly becoming liabilities that we think are going to drag China down. Mm. Um, you mentioned Nixon to China and, um, you know, uh, pretty much all my life uh, that that event has been sort of described as sort of uh, a uh, geopolitical and diplomatic masterstroke by uh, Nixon. Um, but in retrospect, was was uh, was Nixon to China and sort of bringing China into the community of nations was that a was that a mistake? I mean, I know there were some writers at the time, uh, you know, guys like Bill Buckley and uh, stuff like that, were you know not too happy <laughs> uh, with Nixon going soft on China all of a sudden. I mean, especially uh, he he goes to China in '72. The Cultural Revolution is still uh, ongoing. I mean, that's something that basically goes on until, uh, uh, like chairman Mao's death. Um, and you mentioned before that, uh, basically we told the, uh, you know, the Soviet union not to attack China, that sort of thing. But it seems like, I don't know, um, having the two biggest, you know, communist powers on earth, uh, you know, uh, well, other than like the nuclear factor, that's not good, but, um, to have them uh, sort of, you know, at each other's, or not at each other's throats, but sort of that, that conflict between the two, that seems to be uh, a pretty decent strategy. So um, I don't know. But so, uh, yeah, so in retrospect was uh, seeing now what China has become, um, you know, because there was the the belief you know, not so much anymore, but, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that as a country uh, liberalizes and opens up its economy, that, um, you know, that it's going, by doing so, that would liberalize the country politically, and that obviously was not the case with China. So um, was the, the Nixon to China thing, in retrospect, uh, not the best <laughs> not the best move. Should we not have done that? Should we take that one back? Or was it still a pretty good idea? I think it was probably a good idea. I mean, we're, we're talking about in the Cold War, uh, you know, it really helped for the United States to exploit the Sino-Soviet split. It forced the Soviets to confront a, uh, a more united um, set of opposition, and it allowed the United States to pull out of Vietnam without having to worry about uh, 
Maoist China, you know, uh, spilling over and and fomenting even more instability and more dominoes falling there. Mm. Um, And it really made the Soviets feel strategically encircled and also drew the Soviets' attention further to Asia, which obviously drains the resources they have to get tough in, in Europe. So that helps shore up that balance. I think, I guess you could argue that it's a policy that ran its course after the end yeah. of the Cold War, especially since you had the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. That might have been a logical jumping off point. But I think you can understand why American policymakers thought it was worth trying to integrate mm-hmm. China. I mean, what are you going to do immediately as soon as the Soviet Union collapses? Just turn on China and try to bury it into the ground? I mean, I think... You know, there, there was the combination of just the fact that China was very weak. And so you didn't have to worry so much about Chinese military expansion. And on the other hand, it was a massive money making opportunity with, you know, a billion plus people, a huge coastline in the heart of East Asia, um, the ability to, you know, for Western multinational firms to set up manufacturing there and tap mm-hmm. cheap pools of labor and churn out lots of goods. I mean, just from a from a greedy money making standpoint, it made a lot of sense why policymakers did that. I think, you know, it would have been interesting to know what would have happened if 9-11 hadn't occurred because the George Mm. W. Bush administration came to power talking about China as a strategic competitor. And they obviously, they also said they didn't want to do nation building in the Middle East and around the developing world. Then 9-11 happened. And then events happened and then, yeah, everything. Right. Those things go out the window and then suddenly the United States needs Chinese cooperation for, to get UN Security Council authorization for military interventions to not stir up problems in Asia while the U.S. is bogged down in the Middle East. And the two powers actually collaborate somewhat on counterterrorism because obviously China is not uh, enthused about Islamic radicalism. And the U.S. actually designated a Uyghur separatist group, a, a terrorist organization in the early 2000s. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened then. Um, as it stands, you know, it wasn't really till the 2008 financial crisis um, a series of events and, sh- and really just China becoming much more repressive and aggressive mm-hmm. over the last decade that I think set us up for the strategic reckoning that we've had since the Trump administration. Uh, I'm not sure, but did did, um, did the Soviet Union, did their sort of conflict with China, their relationship with China, did that have anything to do with with them getting into invading Afghanistan in the, in the late 70s or early 80s? Uh, I don't I don't think so. No. OK. All right. Just double checking. Um, all right, yeah, so you mentioned these, uh, you know, you were talking about these factors that contributed to China's rise as a power, uh, but these um, these factors that helped China, uh, you know, in the past 40 years are now starting to become a, a liability. They're having um, you know, demographic issues, uh, uh, you know, a dwindling number of resources and sort of a lot of uh, environmental um, uh, degradation uh, you know, institutional uh, decay uh, in the party. Um, you know, uh, they have a shifting geopolitical environment now to deal with, and uh, you know, it's not the the road isn't straight and clear as it was in the last 40 years. And then they have all this uh, uh, economic uh, stagnation happening at the uh, at the current time. Yeah, I mean, for for starters, China's running out of resources since the 1970s. It's lost half its rivers, 60% of its groundwater, 40% of its farmland, almost all of its exploitable oil. And now it's the largest importer in the world of food and energy. It's suffering severe water scarcity. Beijing has about as much water per person as Saudi Arabia 
does. And this resource scarcity has just driven up the price of growth. Each unit of GDP growth is now three times more expensive for China to produce now than it was in the mid 2000s because raw materials are just more expensive. Uh, China's also running out of people thanks to the one child policy between now and the early 2030s. China will lose 70 million working age adults and gain 120 million senior citizens. That's like taking an entire France of consumers, taxpayers and workers out of the population and adding an entire Japan of elderly pensioners. And that's in just over a decade. That 10 to 1 ratio I talked about earlier of workers to retirees is going to collapse to 2 to 1 by the late 2030s. And dealing with these problems is going to be especially difficult because China is sort of sliding into a brutal dictatorship. And Xi Jinping consistently sacrifices economic growth for political power. We're seeing that obviously with the zero COVID lockdowns with the the tech crackdown that erased several trillion dollars in market capitalization from the country's most dynamic firms, the heavy subsidization of zombie state-owned enterprises, and the, the outline of negative economic news. None of that really bodes well for future reform. And then finally, you know, rich democracies are starting to turn on China. The United States is effectively pursuing economic containment with its tariffs and investment restrictions. The EU and Japan are to some extent following suit, and China just overall faces more than 10,000 new trade and investment barriers today that it didn't face 10 years ago. So it's starting to lose the easy access it once enjoyed to rich country markets and technology. These headwinds are already dragging down China's economy um, and, and making its strategic situation much worse, and we think that these headwinds are going to get even harsher in the years ahead. Yeah, um, just how bad is China's economic situation? I mean, because you can't really trust <laughs> uh, the numbers um, that the the official numbers that come from the CCP, and uh, those numbers have you know shown a considerable um, slowdown in growth um, over like the last decade or so. But uh, you guys think it's um, it's far worse than that. There might be uh, abs- they might be at a point now where they're not even seeing any growth at all in their economy. That's right. I mean, before the COVID pandemic, China said it was growing at 6%. There's been a lot of rigorous studies that suggest the actual rate of growth is usually around half of whatever the official listed rate is. And these studies are based on objectively uh, measurable things like, you know, you can see the lights on at night and use that as a proxy. You can look Mm -hmm. at different indexes and particular industries and create a composite index. In fact, China's number two in charge, Li Keqiang, actually invented his own index because he couldn't rely on China's (laughs) GDP numbers. So they actually call it the Li Keqiang uh, index. But I mean, regardless of what the numbers are, the trends are, it's really the trends that are most worrisome because, you know, from 2010 to 2019, growth rates dropped by more than half. And then COVID dragged down growth by another two thirds. And now zero COVID could be leading to, you know, zero to 1% growth. And I think worse than all this is just the quality of China's economic growth has deteriorated. So productivity, which is what you actually need to generate real wealth, is down more than 12% over the past decade. So that means China's spending more and more to produce less and less. Most of China's growth is really just from the government force feeding capital through the economy. So just spending, stimulus spending, right? And that results obviously in a lot of debt. So China's debt, you know, even before COVID exceeded 300% of GDP and was rising. And now it's increased at least 23 or 24 percentage points since COVID. And any country that's accumulated debt that fast 
or lost productivity or aged at anything close to China's current pace has gone on to suffer at least one so-called lost decade of essentially zero economic growth. Um, and these economic headwinds are hitting China as it's confronting a more hostile security environment. Negative views of China have surged to levels we haven't seen since the Tiananmen Square massacre, and they're manifesting themselves in all kinds of ways that are making life harder for Beijing. The rise of an independent Taiwanese identity, this doubling of Japanese defense spending, the mm. emergence of anti-China coalitions like AUKUS and the Quad. Even the Europeans have suspended their investment treaty and are sending token warships into the South China Sea to dispute China's territorial claims. So the situation is is not absolutely dire for China, but it's definitely headed in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, speaking of COVID, um, do we know? Do we have any idea exactly like how how rough they had it with COVID? I mean, again, because you can't uh, believe the numbers uh, uh, from China. Do we have any like a, a like a ballpark estimate of you know how many um, uh, deaths they uh, suffered from COVID? Uh, you know, stuff like that. I, I, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever really know um, just because the, the mm. information is so highly censored. I mean, I think it's plausible that their death rates weren't that high just because they took such draconian lockdown yeah. measures. But that if that's true, that actually makes things sort of worse for them now just because you don't have much natural immunity and it looks like the Chinese vaccine is not very effective against new variants. And so I think that is part of the reason you're seeing zero COVID is there's this fear that if they do just open up, you're going to have a wave of deaths and hospitals are going to get completely overloaded. And that obviously does not look good for Xi Jinping. Yeah, I saw a video um, uh, maybe like a week ago on Twitter or something um, that basically all these uh, Chinese rushing out of a, a or like an office building or an apartment building, something. Uh, because one of the uh, people in the building had uh, tested positive uh, for COVID, and so because the the lockdown measures are so strict that basically like they <laughs> they basically make everybody in the building like quarantine um, if like someone in the building has uh, for for multiple weeks if someone has a you know a positive COVID test, so all these people are just rushing to get out of the building just so they could make sure that they they weren't stuck there for. Uh, for for two weeks in a in a quarantine and it was just you know just a flood of people just like you know streaming out the door it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I think it was in a shopping mall and people didn't shopping want to get locked didn't want to get right. locked in there for <laughs> days or whatever it would be. So they just all sounds like the start of a zombie movie. You know, you get locked in a in a mall for. I mean, two honestly, weeks. The scenes coming out of Chinese cities look a pop like like yeah. dystopian. I mean, it looks like some combination of like George Orwell and the Squid Game because you have. I mean, it doesn't help the fact that all these officials have hazmat suits on as they're walking around and, and <laughs> people in their apartments. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Um, the, the, the images themselves are so striking. Yeah. And, um, just get back to the democratic, or excuse me, the demographic challenges, uh, folks that you mentioned the one child policy and the amount of, um, the increasing amount of older citizens and the, the, the smaller number amount of working citizens that are, you know, gonna, you know, have to basically pay to, you know, uh, for the care of these older citizens. And I, I think you guys mentioned in the book that they're, uh, if they haven't reached there yet, they're pretty close to the point where <laughs> adult diapers are, uh, outselling, uh, baby diapers in the kitchen. I know that happened to Japan maybe about like 10 years ago or so, something like that. But, um, 
So that's pretty crazy. But the other thing, too, is the uh, sort of sex imbalance that's going to be coming up. So, uh, again, because of the one-child policy and uh, boys being more desirable than than females, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, sex-selective abortion going on. Uh, during the time of the one-child policy, and but uh, we're gonna basically we're gonna get to a point very soon where there's gonna be I think you said in the book about 40 million more bachelors than a, a single woman of a of a similar uh, in a, in the same age group, and what does that mean for China's internal security? Because uh, it seems like it's gonna be if you have like 40 million dudes who uh, you know can't find a mate. Uh, you know, to put it in the uh, sort of nicest possible terms, um, that seems to be uh, a big issue, <laughs> especially um, uh, you know when you're, uh, especially when you see uh, again we, all these uh, in uh, these uh, crackdowns, this, these dystopian things you see coming out of China, just the uh, videos and stuff like that. It, um, is it going to be difficult to um, sort of manage this giant cohort of, of men that are, you know, uh, that just by the sheer weight of numbers aren't just going to be, are most of whom aren't going to be able to find, um, you know, a spouse or a, a significant other for, you know, most of their lives? Yeah, I think the two ways it could matter are the ones you've suggested. One is social instability, you know, having been a young man at one point myself, I know that, um, you know, uh, if you're a young man, you're untamed by a partner and, uh, that you do stupid things and, um, you get a bunch of young men together and they do really stupid things. Um, we've seen youth bulges cause political instability in other regions. So I think the Chinese government is, is worried about that. I actually think it's one of the many rationales for something like Belt and Road, because if you have this, these excess, men, you need to provide them something productive to do. And so sending them out of the country to work on infrastructure projects is a good way to not only generate money, but also to uh, get potentially uh, rebellious people out of the country. But I think the other is just what does it mean for China's military strategies? Because, you know, some people say because China's a one child nation that it's unlikely to fight wars because parents don't want to lose their only child. But I worry that this sex imbalance may shift things in the other direction, because if you're the CCP and you look at these 40 million men as like expendable, essentially, are you therefore are you would you be more likely to throw them into a meat grinder because you see them as excess men? Um, I I don't know if we have any real studies that Mm. can provide much insight on that, but it's something I certainly worry about. And I also just I think it's important to recognize it's not just that there's a lot of unmarried men. There's a lot of unemployable men because China has systematically underinvested in education, especially in rural areas, which is the majority is 60 plus percent of China's population. And it's where there's actually been population growth because the one child policy was relaxed in rural areas way before urban areas and people in rural areas just tend to have more children. Um, And what what studies have shown is that. Um, you know, most of these these people don't even have um, haven't even graduated middle school. Uh, you mm. know, 70 percent of China's current workforce doesn't have a high school degree and they suffer from very high levels of um, disease like worms. Uh, they have IQs that are extremely low because of malnutrition when they were young. Um, and so, you know, the pro- that wasn't a big problem for China when it was 
uh, you know, just moving peasants into factories to do basic, you know, slapping together export processing, you know, putting together um, um, products for, mm-hmm. for export. But now that China needs to transition to a more knowledge based and service sector dominated economy, it, there's just this huge labor force, roughly 200 to 300 million workers from rural China that are basically unemployable in a modern economy. They can't they can barely read. They're not really numerate. Um, they, you know, they have trouble concentrating. And so you, you see it in these jobs fairs where these guys come in who have just been laid off from a construction firm because you don't need as much construction in China now. But and they're looking for a job as like a hotel greeter or something like that. And they can't yeah. they can't pass basic tests and they just kind of go off. And what we've seen in other countries that have kind of gone through this in Mexico, um, you, you start to see a big rise in organized crime. Because, you know, the options are you either join the informal economy, uh, you know, washing windows at intersections or you try to find illegal ways to make money. And so I think the Chinese regime also has to worry um, about that. Scott Rosell at at Stanford has done some amazing studies um, really talking about what he calls invisible China, this rural labor force that is severely under um, undereducated and uh, is going to cause major problems for China trying to move up economically over the long run. Yeah, and how much, uh, sort of on that same uh, topic, how much of a problem um, are, is there uh, a big problem from like separatists? You mentioned like uh, the Uyghurs earlier. Um, is there a big problem with uh, separatism from uh, from uh, uh minority groups in China like the Uyghurs or say like uh, uh, Tibetans um, is there uh, um, you know is there much for China to worry about on that front I don't think so just because China has created the most advanced and pervasive internal security apparatus the world has ever seen I mean if you just look at mm-hmm. at Xinjiang I mean it's 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 distinctly Orwellian. You have Chinese security officers manning these concentration camps, doing forced sterilization. There's millions of security cameras ever, biometric scanners, mandatory cell phone apps that are feeding data into computers that are basically keeping tabs on everything that's happening in Xinjiang. You have algorithms that are matching that camera footage with blood samples and DNA swabs that are taken by police at these mandatory health checks when a Uyghur reaches the end of the edge of their neighborhood their cell phone automatically alerts the authorities uh, when they pump gas the system checks whether they're the car's owner if they try to flee police are dispatched to the doorsteps of their family and friends immediately and if they somehow make it abroad they aren't even guaranteed an escape because China now has authoritarian allies even in Muslim majority countries like Egypt that have actually imported parts of China's surveillance technology and then are using those technologies to track down and extradite Uyghurs back into Beijing's clutches. So Beijing has really fully clamped down. I mean, this is why the U.S. government calls it a genocide and has also imposed what they call grid style management on most cities in China, where every block is patrolled by a team of security officers surveilled 24 hours a day by a camera, the government's trying to roll out what they call a social credit registry, mm-hmm. where you would basically be able to discipline citizens instantly by denying them access to credit or tell they can't use their phone anymore, or they can't travel if they you know do something wrong um, that the system detects them, um, right? So it's just just this incredible advance in repressive technologies, 
I think has severely limited the, the, the separatist threat from China. Um, now, I think this repression itself is sort of a threat to China's long-term future and certainly sure, it's horrible sure. for the Chinese people, but it's not, I don't think the Uyghurs or the Tibetans have much hope of breaking away from China. Gotcha. I don't know, uh, the idea that, you know, the government coming in and saying like, oh, we're going to take your phone away, uh, that almost seems like a, like a blessing. <laughs> so it's like, oh, really? Like, please go ahead and take it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, thank God. It was so much... Uh, uh, you know, uh, life would be so much simpler if I didn't have that, <laughs> that stupid yeah. phone with me all the time. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, but uh, so yeah, so shifting away from uh, internal security problems to um, uh, external threats. Um, and you mentioned a little bit earlier the the strategic vice that's sort of now tightening on China from you know practically practically every direction. Uh, uh, you mentioned, you know, like the Japanese uh, 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 doubling their defense budget and Taiwan, etc. But uh, how are its neighbors uh, pushing back? You know, um, the, uh, pl- uh, countries like India, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, uh, you know, Singapore, Australia, like you know, its its neighbors in the region. How are they pushing back against this this sort of authoritarian uh this push for japanese or excuse me for uh chinese imperialism well it varies by country i would say you know a lot of china's neighbors are building up their militaries now so vietnam has acquired um a bunch of anti-ship missiles submarines um you know uh, new fast attack craft and, and fighter jets that can fire those new advanced missiles. India is not just massing forces on its shared border with China in the Himalayas, but is also building up its navy to patrol the Indian Ocean, which is very worrisome for China, given how much of its energy and other trade passes through the Indian Ocean, through the Strait of Malacca, and then into the South China Sea. Um, and you're seeing, you know, these anti-China alliances start to, to pop up. And it's just it's it's amazing, you know, to, to the, the extent to which Beijing has sort of catalyzed some of these on itself. So mm-hmm. you look at something like AUKUS, you know, I remember five, six years ago, the Australians were debating, you know, should we lean more towards China's side because we rely on their economy or should we lean more towards the American side? And then when they when the Australian government asked for an international investigation into COVID, China completely freaked out and waged a trade war against Australia, put big tariffs on most of their major exports. And that really pushed Australians firmly into the U.S. camp. And now they're in AUKUS where they're getting access to long range anti-ship missiles and are going to have nuclear powered submarine technology that will make them more formidable a decade from now. So um, it just looks at every corner of the compass. You know, Beijing is facing more pushback than it did before. There's not like a NATO, you know, ganging Mm -hmm. up on China. But just each of these actions add up to a pretty large web of emerging containment strategically. Is a Pacific NATO, is that something that's in the cards at all in the future? Uh, or does that depend on China, really? Or um, uh, is that something you see uh, foreseeably happen? I don't think you'll have a Northeast Asian treaty organization, although that would be great because its acronym would be NATO. Um, but you know, I, I think what you are, you are, I mean, you have the quad, first of all, yeah. which, you know, is, is surrounding China on all sides effectively with the most powerful navies in the region backed by the United States. And then you have all of these various hub and spoke arrangements. So the United States is tightening its 
defense relationship with Taiwan um, and, and selling it more arms. Uh, it's the United States and Japan are becoming ever more interoperable. So US F-35 fighter uh, jets are taking off and landing from Japanese amphibious ships that have been converted into mini aircraft carriers. Um, you have India joining these multinational patrols. And then we just talked about AUKUS. And even the Europeans, as I mentioned earlier, are sending sort of token warships into the South China Sea to, to just ha- kind of have a show of force. Um, you know, the British just have uh, two new carriers coming online. So, um, you know, how, how involved would these countries be in an actual war? I think it depends on the time and place. But certainly the number of potential adversaries China is facing is is growing um, and must be very strategically worrying for China. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, um, as everyone you know, can pretty much guess that, you know, Taiwan, if something were going to happen, uh, if hostilities were to break out between us and China, that, you know, obviously Taiwan is the the likely flashpoint. So our um are we prepared for that eventuality if, you know, God forbid it happens or uh, and, and is Taiwan prepared for that eventuality? So uh, the United States and Taiwan have very powerful forces. The problem is that they are concentrated on a bunch of big exposed bases that are essentially sitting ducks for a Chinese missile and air barrage. And so there's this fear that China could carry out a sort of Pearl Harbor style strike on the two big bases the U.S. has on Okinawa, which are the only American military bases within 500 miles of Taiwan and possibly even Guam. And so if Guam and the bases on Okinawa get taken out, the U.S. is basically going to be having to rally forces from way up north in Japan and then across the Pacific from uh, Hawaii and from the U.S. mainland. And that could take a lot of time and then fight their way in through a hail of Chinese missiles and mines. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan has similar problems in the sense that, uh, you know, it's spent most of its defense dollars over the past couple of decades on big, fancy platforms like F-16s that are very expensive. But if those things get blown up on the runway before they can even get off the ground, they're not going to do much good. So now there's this push to transition Taiwan into a prickly porcupine, where you basically just buy lots of ground-based uh, missile launchers that are mobile and can shoot and scoot and can shoot down Chinese aircraft and sink Chinese ships and just have so many of these things spread out all over the island that it's almost impossible to knock them out um, and also use lots of mines, right, to, to mine the Taiwan Strait. And for the United States to do the same thing, to basically lay down a high-tech minefield around Taiwan using missile barges and drones and um, um, honing mines and munitions and long-range missiles. So there are plans to do all this. It's just the problem is it could it, – they may not – bear fruit until the 2030s. And so China has this potential window of opportunity right now because it's been churning out ammunition and warships at a rate over the past decade that we haven't seen from any country mm-hmm. since World War II. And um, it's actually going to get temporarily worse for the United States because in the mid-2020s, you'll see the mass retirement of aging U.S. cruisers, guided missile submarines, long-range bombers. So the U.S. military will have hundreds fewer missile launchers floating and flying around East Asia in the mid to latter part of this decade. And so China has this window of opportunity that will probably slam shut in the 2030s, but that may be all the more reason why China might move aggressively right now. Yeah, you mentioned them um, striking our base on Okinawa, uh, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, Okinawa, the Japanese, that's considered one of the Japanese home islands. 
so that would sort of, I, I would think, uh, guarantee a, a declaration of war from Japan on China. Uh, would that be a, 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 a consideration for them? Or if it's just like, well, we're going after the U.S. already, that's the big dog. So, um, you know, I mean, really, who cares if Japan gets involved or is that a... Uh, but I mean, not that like Jap- Japan is a you know a military lightweight or anything like that. Um, so uh, with that, obviously, that would think that would have to be a consideration for them to in, in striking, um, you know, that facility. China is in a difficult position because on the one hand, it could it could go light to try to avoid U.S. and Japanese involvement, so it could not hit the bases on Okinawa. But the problem is then you're leaving massive firepower on the U.S. side ready to go. And President Biden has said on at least three occasions the United States would defend Taiwan. And the Japanese have said they would consider a Chinese assault on Taiwan of a dire threat to Japan just because if China conquers Taiwan, it's a logical staging point for mm-hmm. blockades or even action against uh, uh, some of the Japanese uh, southern islands. So I think what I worry and what Chinese strategic writings seem to hint is that they think, look, it's inevitable that the United States and Japan are going to get involved. And so we just have to hit them and go big and brutal from the start and hope that by wiping them out and then hopefully consolidating our control over Taiwan, that it's a fait accompli and that the war is effectively over before they can rally their forces and that they'll be convinced by that to back down. Um, or even if we get in some kind of war of attrition, at least we've already consolidated our control over Taiwan. So it's a pretty dire uh, situation. I just worry that China looks at the war in Ukraine. They also look at Pearl Harbor itself, where the mm-hmm. Japanese missed, you know, some of the American carriers were out at sea and there was big fuel depots that didn't get destroyed. And so the, you know, the Japanese, I think from a Chinese perspective, and there are writings that say this, the big mistake was that they didn't hit hard enough, that they didn't actually put the United States down on the mat yeah very beginning and maybe had they done that things would have turned out different yeah uh thanks for bringing up ukraine uh does um how does ukraine factor in does does russia's struggles uh in ukraine does that give the chinese pause when it comes to taiwan um you know seeing how hard of a slog russia has had to um in their invasion of ukraine uh, you know through these last what six months or so, um, like I said, again, does that get them pause? Because you know, invading a neighbor that shares a border with you, um, you know, a land border. I mean, that's an easy thing to do. You just move, you know, just roll the army in and everything. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, going across the uh, South China Sea and uh, you know making amphibious landings onto a, an island and you know having to um, you know, bring supplies in over the, the, the ocean and all that sort of thing. It's a, it's a totally, uh, much more complicated and difficult logistical, uh, situation. So seeing how, um, how hard of a go Russia's had, uh, with Ukraine, again, does that, do you think that is giving, uh, the Chinese a bit more pause when it comes to the decision whether or not to, uh, invade Taiwan? Well, there's the lessons I would hope China would learn from the invasion, namely that conquest is really hard and maybe shouldn't be attempted. But there's the lessons I fear that China has learned because, you know, they've they've looked at the military situation and I think they 
could reasonably assume that China wouldn't fall prey to those because they'd just be much more competent than the Russians. You know, what the, the Russians' mistake was they sort of stumbled into Ukraine on four different axes in this horribly uncoordinated um, manner, and, and they just massed their forces and made them sitting ducks for the Ukrainians to pick off with, um, with all kinds of, you know, uh, rocket launchers and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so the Chinese might say, well, look, the military problems are things that we can fix, that we won't fall prey to that. We're going to, first of all, we're going to hit our target very hard so they, can, they can't even really fight back. We're going to move much faster and we're going to have one spear that's going to be thrust into Taiwan. We're not just going to kind of waddle our way in from multiple different directions and get picked apart. And then I think they can look at the diplomatic side of things and say, look, you know, in some ways we're sort of heartened by what's happened because, you know, the United States and its NATO allies have been very cautious about getting directly militarily involved or possibly coming close to hitting, allowing the Ukrainians to hit Russian territory. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, there's been there's been sanctions, but, you know, uh, China is a much bigger economy. It's 10 times bigger than Russia's economy and, and much more. Um, the costs would be much greater and there probably wouldn't be as much unity just because of those costs from the Western side. And the Westerners seem like they are scared of the nuclear saber being rattled. They see how every time Putin mentions nuclear weapons, he really sends shivers down the spine of the the United States and its allies. And so, you know, China could do the same thing. So I just worry they're going to say, look, the lessons to be learned are go big and brutal from the start, rattle the nuclear saber, make sure you seal Taiwan off from the start so it can't be resupplied like the Ukrainians. Um, and we'll have a much better go of it. And, you know, the Chinese really do look down on the Russians in, in many ways. There's a sense of superiority. And so um, I, I don't think they feel that they would suffer some of the same setbacks that Russia has. Gotcha. Um, sort of one more thing on this uh, Taiwan topic. I uh, Just on our capabilities, I remember um, reading, I think it was in the Weekly Standard, uh, rest in peace, uh, probably a good six, seven years ago, maybe, um, it was an article about, um, uh, about our aircraft carriers and how basically, um, <laughs> uh, I think that the point of it basically was that these ships are so big, um, they cost so much money. They have so many, uh, crew members. I think there's about like four or 5,000, uh, members on these, you know, the bigger nuclear character, uh, car- uh, carriers that uh, we've launched in the last uh, you know couple decades. Uh, like I said, they have you know five thousand, you know four thousand, five thousand crew members. That we cannot, we'll never be able to use them effectively, or, or in the way that they're intended, just because, again, because of the cost, uh, the, the money cost, and the cost in lives. If say, God forbid, we were, you know, you know, we send a carrier group. Uh, you know, into the South China Sea or something like, or near that, and uh, you know, uh, the Chinese used uh, anti-ship missiles to you know, take take it out or something like that. Um, and so, because of that, we probably should not really be building these things anymore. Or uh, so, is that? Uh, do you have the same concerns uh, with um, in, in us being able to project our power? Um, 
you know, overseas and in a situation like this with, uh, you know, with uh, aircraft carriers and whatnot? Or is that, do you think that's overblown, that fear? Uh, No, I I actually share that same fear. I think we live in an age of precision guided munitions. The U.S. doesn't have a monopoly on that anymore. In fact, China has the most diversified set of uh, conventional missiles in in the world. And so, and, and they've explicitly targeted American carriers and and bases. And we've been very slow to diversify away from those because, um, you know, the bureaucracy of the Pentagon, you have these commanders who they want these large multi-role platforms so they can do all kinds of peacetime missions and go around and show the flag and do humanitarian operations and training exercises. But in a wartime scenario, they are extremely vulnerable. And you've just put so many of your eggs in this giant, expensive basket, you know, for the price of a single carrier and its air wing. I mean, how many how many thousands of missile launchers could you buy, you know, and and Mm. put on anything that floats or flies barges, loitering drones, um, cargo aircraft uh, or just buy a bunch of mines. I mean, there's just so many other ways, because at the end of the day, the U.S., isn't trying to conquer territory for itself. It's just trying to prevent China from massing forces and carrying out a blockade or an amphibious invasion. So for that, you don't really need these big power projection platforms. You just need lots of sensors and shooters all around the potential targets of Chinese aggression around Taiwan. And so just from a cost effectiveness perspective, from a vulnerability perspective, it makes no sense to continue to shovel money into big sitting targets um, rather than lots of, you know, what the Navy calls distributed lethality, spreading mm-hmm. out forces and just having so many different nodes in this giant web that it can't be neutralized in any kind of preemptive attack. Yeah, I mean, just the thought of, you know, again, God forbid, if one of them gets sunk in combat, um, just the uh, the morale issue, too, at home, I mean, basically, uh, you know, you wake up one morning and you find out we <laughs> lost, you know, just as many uh, people on one ship as we did in Afghanistan in 20 years, you know, or uh, uh, something like that. That seems to be yeah, uh, like a, a massive problem. But anyway, um, we're getting, we're already gone about an hour. So uh, just a couple more questions before we wrap it up. But are, um, uh, so uh, Trump's China policies, and uh, and the Biden administration's policies um, uh, was Trump were his policies more helpful or more hurtful you know short and long term towards China and is uh, how is Biden undoing how is Biden doing on that front is he is he uh, continued Trump's policies or is there a different approach or uh, so what's going on with uh, you know with uh, U.S. foreign policy when it, the last couple of presidential administrations when it comes to China? Well, the Trump administration gets credit for getting tough with China and really trying to close a lot of the leaky economic links that the United States had with China. I mean, you had the blunt tariffs, but there was a series of investment and technology, uh, technology transfer restrictions that were imposed during the Trump administration that were basically designed to deprive China of access to crown jewels of American technology. And I think just more broadly, just the idea of we need to have a competitive policy with China, the, the days of engagement are over. 
is just sort of a sea change that really takes flight during the Trump administration. The downside of the Trump administration was obviously uh, Trump, you know, antagonized America's allies, which I think are absolutely vital for the competition with China. And so that's where Biden has tried to um, advance and expand on Trump's policies, kept a lot of the economic restrictions in place, but has now been working much more closely with allies and partners all in multiple regions to try to create anti-China coalitions. So, you know, we mentioned some of the security features like AUKUS and the Quad. You also just have a lot of action in the G7, you know, mm-hmm. the rich, top rich democracies who collectively control more than half the world's wealth. And they've been they've been doing all kinds of collaborative R&D projects, collaborative infrastructure financing projects, and really trying to write new trade and investment rules that either implicitly or even explicitly discriminate against China to say, look, you don't respect labor standards that are important to us, environmental standards, intellectual property protection. So we're going to kind of form our own little country club here of rich economies um, as a way to build up our own forces and also to uh, try to slow China's economic progress down. So you've seen a lot of that take off under the Biden administration. And I think Biden and Trump have been um, to some degree additive. Uh, You know, Biden has expanded on Trump's policies um, rather than dismantled many of them. Okay. So, um, so, uh, basically what, um, how do we fight back? What's the summing up? How, how do we fight back against this Chinese imperialism, uh, protect democracy, uh, keep Taiwan free and all that. And, and if we do this, if, uh, this danger zone, uh, that you guys, this, you know, decade long period that we have coming up, if we navigate our way through it successfully, um, what do you see the world look uh, looking like uh, on the other end uh, in ten years? What is you know what does China look like? Uh, what does the region look like? That sort of thing. So I think in terms of policy, you know, one key takeaway from our book is that time is short. That China is making moves now, and so you have to you know, U.S. the United States has advantages over the long term, but that's not going to matter if we lose a bunch of short-term battles that radically upend the long-term balance of power. So you have to move fast and just use the tools and the partners that you have available, not those that you could develop maybe over 10 years with a bunch of R&D and a diplomatic outreach. We draw lessons from the Cold War where you know we note that things like aid to Greece and Turkey happened in a matter of days. The Marshall Plan was slapped together in a matter of weeks. NATO was a frantic response to fast-breaking crises in 1948. And so today we think there needs to be, first of all, a crash program to just surge shooters and sensors around the Taiwan Strait. Uh, a free world economic block anchored by the G7 um, you know, needs to basically continue to do what it's doing, where you're sort of trying to prevent China from monopolizing key choke points in the global economy, key products, whether it's computer chips or medical uh, protective gear or rare earths that could really give it tremendous leverage over uh, partners. And then you also need a coalition of democracies to slow the spread of repression technology, expose Beijing's human rights abuses, and actually start hacking digital authoritarian systems so that they aren't as effective um, and can be spoofed. Um, so you know, it's a lot of it is just sort of moving faster. And we think that if you can do these things, if you can blunt this surge of Chinese repression and aggression, and get to the long game, you know, by the 2030s, 
We don't know much about where we'll be, but we do know a few things with relative certainty. One is that China is going to be in demographic freefall, which is going to drag down its economic growth. We also know that a lot of its loans doled out through the Belt and Road are going to come due and most of them won't be paid back. So China is going to be in the business of debt collection, which is not going to make it very um, well liked in the developing world. And we know that Xi Jinping is going to be in his 80s. And so there may be um, the process of succession stepping up. And so, you know, with, with that kind of China, maybe you get um, uh, an about face where they start to backtrack on some of these policies just because at that point they're they're not just a peaking power, they're a declining power. On the other hand, you may get, you know, instead of a Chinese Gorbachev, you may, you may get a Chinese Putin, you know, who plays a declining hand in a very violent way. And so, you know, there's no guarantee that just making it through the danger zone is going to be the end of U.S.-China competition. Right. But we do think that this is the critical period just because China is coming off a recent period of just surging growth and tremendous military modernization that give it the ability to do smash and grab operations in key areas. I don't think that will be so much the case in the 2030s. So we just need it. Right now, the focus just needs to be on getting to the long game and then we can figure out how to play it from there. Oh, uh, <laughs> just thought about this. Um, I, your uh, colleague at AEI, Jonah Goldberg, he, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, he has this, uh, and, and he does a thing on his podcast about like half-baked ideas. Uh, and I think one of them was that uh, he thinks <laughs> basically that the government should issue letters of mark to uh, hackers, uh, you know, letters of mark, the, the things they used to, uh, you know, basically sort of like state-sponsored piracy, <laughs> you know. Uh, so the the uh, we're in the old days for actual, you know, actual piracy, like on the seas. Uh, you know, the the government would issue, I guess, Congress under the Constitution has the, or maybe it's the president, I can't remember, has the authority to issue a letter of mark, which allows, uh, you know, a privateer or whatever to go out and just basically, you know, take stuff. Um, so he thinks we should sort of issue like a, uh, uh, like a digital letter of mark to all these hackers and let them, you know, just run roughshod on, uh, like the, on CCP, uh, uh, you know, software and, uh, you know, hack stuff and, uh, you know, like, you know, steal the CCP's money and that sort of thing. And basically like cut the, you cut the, uh, privateers or the, the, uh, like hackers in on like you know a portion of whatever they get to uh intellectual property or or uh um, or, or money or whatever or whatever they do uh that they they'd obviously get a percentage of it so is that a again this is in his like half-baked ideas uh thing but is that actually uh a half-baked idea or is that actually like kind of a you know kind of off the wall kind of cool idea no, I mean, we actually advocate the same thing. I mean, we say that the, United, the U.S. government doesn't necessarily have to be the one to hack China's digital authoritarian systems. It could just help uh, produce code and, and then release that. And then, you know, there'll be hackers all over the world that will use that uh, to, to wreak havoc on, on these systems, which are actually, from what I understand, relatively easy to spoof just because, I mean, they're trying to cast such a wide net. And mm -hmm. so you, you just feed in some fake images or, you know, uh, some some wrong records that make it seem like actually a Chinese official is a dissident or something. I mean, just 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 to make it so that it's it's chaotic. And so they can't really trust the system. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do this in countries that adopt China's system. 
as well. Obviously, you need to be careful about getting into a sort of cyber warfare arms race. Um, but in terms of just, you know, we're going to find ways to make these systems glitchy. Mm-hmm. I think you don't even necessarily need the U.S. government to be the one to do it. In fact, it might even be better if it's more of a, a private thing that is just, you know, leagues of, of uh, hackers uh, attempting to. I mean, could we even do like super goofy, goofy stuff like uh, like make uh, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's uh, the background uh photo like on his phone like winnie the pooh or something like that or you know like he wakes yeah up you know I, I so yeah i mean like stuff like that i would say don't do i just think that you know the, the idea is just to make sure that these yeah. systems don't work very well so that other countries say you know what thanks but no thanks we don't really yeah, want gotcha. that technology if it's going to expose us that it's not to destabilize the chinese regime i just think the the downsides of that massively outweigh the upsides of you know putting winnie the pooh on um, <laughs> all right gotcha all right well uh, i apologize for uh, keeping you a little bit long but uh just want to wrap up with uh one question again this is something i asked um uh, basically everybody that comes on the podcast and that's uh uh what would you like the audience to get out of uh to get out of this book what's the what's the one thing you'd want them to uh, to take away from reading it I think that China has changed, um, that we are dealing with a China that's in a different part of its trajectory as a great power, and this radically alters its calculus, both in terms of domestic policy and foreign policy, and that China, this this danger is is coming in, in the short term. And even though we have tremendous long-term capabilities, the United States and its allies have been very slow about marshalling a lot of those resources. And so there's, um, you know, a lot of risk that could be exposed. And so just the need to move fast, to not make the perfect, the enemy of the good, to just be willing to MacGyver quick solutions that can plug holes in our deterrent barrier um, and shore up our economies. I think that's where the focus needs to be. So often this this competition is portrayed as a hundred year marathon where we have time, you know, decades to do R&D and rally our coalitions. I just think that's the wrong way to look at it. Right now, we're in a very dangerous period. History suggests so. China's recent behavior suggests so. And we need to react accordingly. All right, great. Well, um, before we go, anything else uh, you want to plug uh, before we go? Any um, social media or uh, any appearances coming up? Anything like that you want to? I, I don't do I, I don't do social media, so All right, good for uh, you. the plug there. And um, <laughs> you know, just just the the two books that you mentioned earlier. Um, and thanks so much for having me on. Oh, no problem. All right, yeah. Uh, again, the book is Danger Zone: The Coming Conflict with China. Uh, this is a really uh, really fascinating book. I actually I read it and just. I read most of it in one sitting, and then um, my son woke up, and I had to stop. <laughs> so, uh, and then I read the the basically like the couple second uh, the last couple of chapters the the next night. But um, really, really uh, uh, interesting uh, book on uh, the situation, uh, the potential situation coming up over the next decade in uh, Southeast Asia, and um, you know. Uh, it's really thought-provoking, uh, really um, uh, easy read, and uh, uh, highly, highly recommend it for um, for anyone out there with an interest on the subject. It's really, really a great, uh, great book. And again, the authors are uh, Hal Brands and uh, Michael Beckley. Again, the book is Danger Zone: The Coming Conflict with with China. And uh, Dr. Beckley, thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on the podcast, talking about the book with me. I uh, really. Uh, 
really uh, appreciated the book and really appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, you know uh, spending over an hour with me. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, All right no problem. And uh, again, if you guys like that, like this podcast, please make sure you leave us a five star review and share it with your friends. And if you have books with us, uh, you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can uh, reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's a T-B-E-N-S-O-N at, heart, at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, speaking of social media, which I normally don't have either, but we do have um, a, a Twitter page for this uh, podcast. You can uh, be sure to check us out there, you know, send us a DM if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, or, you know, always give us a follow for more information about stuff. Uh, our, uh, Twitter handle is at illbooks at I L L books. So make sure you check that out. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye-bye. <laughs>